This thought popped up, I'm going to miss you. <laughs> the three of us are going to talk tonight, and, um, and uh, mine is very, what I'm going to say is really impromptu. Um, so, <coughs> and I'm saying that in honor of uh, what we're doing as a community because I believe that we are co-creating together something new and um, and that means that we're all learning together, we're a learning community. Um, and what I'm going to share um, is just my personal perspective around that and isn't in any of the Buddha's teachings. <laughs> but it's been helpful for me in um, uh, understanding my path about what it means to co-create community. I have come to understand that change, healing, transformation, and equity have to happen on four levels. The personal, the interpersonal, the cultural, and the structural. And if anyone is left out, it means that that movement gets stopped. I learned this just going back to um, my heritage as a daughter of activists in South Africa. And the learning has been profound for me because you might guess already that children of activists um, live with the impact of that. My, not, just a, not just around that my parents were in jail or in hiding, uh, but the targeting of the police and the secret service against our family. And that I didn't see my parents a lot and that they were very involved for really good reasons. And I'm just say, I'm saying this because the learning I'm sharing you with you comes from the weight of being a child of an activist. And so, um, so us, all of us, and as whites, we had it so much easier. Um, carried the impact of of that and. Um, when Mandela came to power and the, the, there was this constitution that was um, written, which is an amazing constitution. Um, this is just, there are many, many things, but this is one said, this is one part of it. The state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly 
against anyone on one or more grounds, including race, gender, sex, pregnancy, marital state, status, ethnic or social origin, color, sexual orientation, age, disability, religion, conscience, belief, culture, language, and birth. It's so beautiful. So beautiful and so important. And at the same time, I don't know if any of you remember there being a very um, successful and quite well-known African football player, a queer woman, who was um, beaten to death, and how much violence there is directed against our community in South Africa even with that constitution. And so as a carrier of a, a very small part of the struggles to get to the place of writing that constitution, it's such a teaching to see how that in itself isn't enough. And then on the other side, deeply um, in love with the Dharma and the practice of the Dharma. And at the same time, uh, acknowledging that the Dalai Lama hasn't supported women's ordination and that um, uh, Anilio, a very famous uh, monk who wrote a, a book, a very well-received and studied book, the Satipatthana Sutta, said in an interview after his teaching that ordained women needed to accept second-place status. Uh, or that a new center has been built in a city quite recently where the temple, the meditation hall, was upstairs, so it wasn't wheelchair accessible, and there was no elevator. So holding that challenge, or that, the, the great sadness of what it, what it means to be so dedicated to a practice and to a community in which the transformation that is happening internally isn't expressed across difference. And so it's so apparent to me, like screaming to me, that just meditating is not enough. And that if we take it only as an individual occupation, that we're sitting here to heal ourselves or even to awaken in the context of not acknowledging oppression, then there is a great distortion in the actual practice. As there is a great distortion in many political movements with beautiful visions, that don't include the personal and interpersonal practices of transformation.
And so it feels to me that we need to work on all four levels. And it's not that each one of us has to work on all four levels equally, but that we at least frame it that all four levels need to be worked. In saying that then, it becomes clear that in order to work on all four levels, we need to really understand the dynamics that stop us doing that. And that means looking particularly at the dynamics of oppression and the nature of privilege in that. Because when I look at, when I look at um, what's stopping that integration and strength of change, um, in, our, in our practice communities, it's because of the way um, ignorance is played out in socially constructed ways. So then just to backtrack again. When the Buddha came to enlightenment, he said that he looked into the world and there was no time and he could look into eons and eons and eons because it is said that when you're a Buddha, your mind can see and know everything there is to see and know. And he looked into the world and he said, I can't find a time when there isn't ignorance. So just to say that. And that each of us, until we're fully awakened, inherit this dynamic of blindness. And we've been talking about it and coming in from all kinds of different ways. This confusion and incapacity to see things as they are. This misunderstanding of where suffering is. And not seeing it where it is. And not seeing where happiness is this sort of sense of getting lost, and the dynamic that comes out of ignorance, the habitual dynamic that comes out of ignorance, out of this confusion, um, is the dynamic of greed and craving and wanting or not wanting, aversion, hatred, judgment. And we can sort of understand that because when we think of that movement to wanting, it's coming out of the confusion and insufficiency, that sense of inadequacy or insufficiency that comes when we're confused and not connected, when there's no presence, when there's nothing that, um, that clarifies. Then there is a sense of, of dis-ease or homelessness and understandably the movement to move out and try to hold on to something. And we hold on in all kinds of ways. We hold on to the messages we receive about who we are. We hold on to sensual pleasures that John talked about. We, we try to hold on to experiences in the way Jean talked about. That dynamic is operating all the time. 
or we're pushing it away. We're pushing away what we don't like. Every human being is doing this until they're fully awakened. It's not just a personal matter. It's a matter of all humanity. In that environment, in cultures and societies where this dynamic is operating, it gets constructed uh, around inequity. So certain communities or certain tribes in Africa, certain communities for historical reasons have more access to resources and power than others. And in that misunderstanding of where happiness lies, they hold on to it. And that's what privilege is. And the groups who are institutionally um, uh, disempowered are often called the target groups or the oppressed groups. We, in our different expressions here, are one of those. When we're in a target group, when we're disempowered, there's no confusion about it. We know it, for the most part. There is a defense of denial of difference, you know, that happens. But for the most part, we know that we're being targeted. When we're in a privileged group, we don't know we're in the privileged group. The, the blindness, the veils of, of, um, of uh, confusion um, uh, uh, kind of take over and, and normalize the experience. So we all here are in both, both groups. Some of us are from middle class and upper, upper middle class or upper class um, families. Some of us are able-bodied. Uh, some of us have been educated with bachelors or masters or doctorates or in other um, uh, places of education. Some of us speak English as a first language. Some of us have been born in this country and are, uh, are citizens. Some of us are non-veterans. Some of us are Protestants and um, that, that sort of church, the, the predominant church in this country or churches in this country. Um, some of us, even within this community, define ourselves as lesbian, gay, and have access to more power and privilege than trans community or genderqueer community. Or the intersex community. Some of us are um, um, born into male bodies and to have that privilege. Even when we are acutely sensitive to the places where we are being targeted, it doesn't mean we're sensitive to the places where we're privileged. 
And that explains why in our community there is racism and sexism and ableism and classism. Because, not because we're bad people, but because the nature of privilege is, is based in ignorance and it's confused. And so just like the Buddha said, that unless we look at that confusion, unless we bring awareness and mindfulness to it, those dynamics will continue to operate. And that when we talk about awakening, we can't really until we conscientiously include the places of privilege. Because in those privileged positions, we are operating as though there isn't oppression because that's the nature of a privilege. So how is it that Analio, a beautiful teacher, I don't know if any of you have sat with him, a beautiful teacher, a beautiful being, deeply um, a deep practitioner and awakened can say women need to accept their second status in the ordained community. Or the Dalai Lama, another beautiful being, can, can still resist full ordination for women. It's not because they're terrible in the same ways that we're not terrible, but because there is this conditioned blindness to the dynamic of oppression when we're in the privileged group. How easy it is for me, for example, to take for granted when a friend calls me up and says, why don't you come over, that I can actually visit them, uh, that I can walk up the stairs to get to their house. And how hard it is, I know, for my friends in wheelchairs to have access to all kinds of different places, you know, even restaurants, because even though restaurants are supposed to have bathrooms that are wheelchair accessible, so many of them you can't get through the door. You know, and what a big thing it is when you want to go out, how much research you have to do to even find a place that you can go out to. And we are totally unaware of that privilege. Or how many sidewalks are still not wheelchair accessible? How many centers are not wheelchair accessible? How, how much of us are aware that in California they've defunded support for people in wheelchairs? How much of us do we know that? Uh, Sorry, I just had a, a geographical moment of dislocation. I'm not in California. <laughs> right, right, I don't know what's happening in Massachusetts, but in California, that's what's <laughs> happening. And so when I talk about us becoming a community that is learning together, it's really about us beginning 
to look at the places where we're privileged and to take personal responsibility to learn about it. Because we know already what it's like in this community as, a t as where we've been targeted, what it's like to have to continually educate people around homophobia. We ask our allies to help do that education. Each of us in the privileged community need to do that work so that at least in our communities we are beginning to transform our relationships so that each of us is seen in the many intersections that we live in. That to me is Dharma. When we are cultivating love and compassion, not just for ourselves individually, but in our locations, and from that compassion, we're willing to look at the places where we're unaware and that we've taken for granted, and how that taking for granted means that we cannot have real compassion, honestly. You know, I mean, not that sending compassion isn't lovely, it is. But when we don't do this work, it's so superficial. In this way, we, we are able to listen to each other. So when someone says to me, um, uh, you know, I was doing, you don't, you don't know this, I'm just about to tell you. <laughs> um, I was doing some anti-racist work in an organization and um, uh, people in power uh, critiqued me and um, they said, you know, you, you were great with the people of color but you weren't friendly to the white people. And it was so lovely because I wasn't doing what exactly I'm sharing with you. I wasn't holding that place of privilege. I wasn't relating to it. And because I wasn't, I wasn't able to build the kind of relationships that were needed in order to connect with other people in that privileged position. I wasn't able to be a good ally. Because it's painful. It's painful to see that sense of entitlement. Growing up in South Africa, deep training on white entitlement and privilege, on white arrogance. I mean, it, sometimes, you know, I talked about feeling nauseated with Meta, feeling nauseated with some of my South African community because of the arrogance of that privilege and how to begin to turn our awareness and love towards it and to own it and to heal it. And the only way we can do it is through friendship. And it feels so counterintuitive. 
but I know from, and I, and I know you know, that judgment and shame and blame are never the environments for learning and opening and healing. Never. You know, and that all the great revolutionaries, at least that I have, that have been my teachers, are so clear on this, that love is the path and love is the way. And that means for each of us in our locations, loving those locations in the sense of turning towards them in friendship and acknowledging that they're there and exploring them and owning them so that they might be transformed, so that we might become allies then for our target communities in working with our privileged communities, wherever we're privileged, men working with men, white people working with white people, able-bodied people working with able-bodied people, Uh, citizens who are safe working with, I don't know what's happening in this state, but in California, mass forced um, uh, expulsion of immigrants who don't have documentation, thousands and thousands and thousands of families in California split apart. And parents being forcibly put in detention centers and then um, deported to their country of origin. It's massive. And so how we as allies work with what it means to have the safety of being a citizen and working Uh, in alliances, and it's not like we can do all of it, but to understand the framework and the field so we know what the path is. In our queer community, the forced immigration in our queer community, just to know it. Not in shame and blame and guilt again, but in that wish to turn that, that, that mindfulness and kindness we've been developing towards these dynamics and saying, I want to build a new culture that really is inclusive. I want to build relationships that are respectful. Just one more thing. So when we, in our privileged positions, say things that land negatively, we rely on you to give us feedback because we're blind. I don't mean blind. I I don't want to use that word. Sorry. It's a very traditional word to use. We are confused. We don't know. And we need to be educated when it's safe and appropriate, as well as educating ourselves, that we are learning and we're learning together, because how could we not? One last thing, because I know I've gone way over my time. One last thing. 
they did say I could have more time, which is very <laughs> sweet. They said, you can take more time. I want to acknowledge the profound suffering of being both in a oppressed group and in a privileged group. They different experiences. In the oppressed group, the amount of negative messages and lack of safety we have, it goes deep into our being. And I, just from the groups that I've been in, I want to say it isn't a personal failure. It is because we live in a culture of oppression and we have breathed in those messages when we were young without realizing it and without understanding the impact. It is revolutionary to heal that inside of ourselves. It is revolutionary to heal the sense of separation, the kind of prison, prison of privilege. Because in that location, we are not connected. We are walled off. We are, we are kind of defended in a kind of comfort that is really lonely. Which is why, how come, in a general thing, I don't know if you've done any workshops on multiculturalism and diversity, how white people like, are just hanging around individually and like people of color all together, you know, and the same around heterosexism. You know, the straight people are just kind of hanging out and all the queer people are like together talking about it. It's like, <laughs> it's like in that privilege, there's a way in which our hearts are deeply bounded and shut down. And that is the suffering of privilege. My prayer for us is that we practice to open to both kinds of suffering with the vision of creating relationships in equity, institutions in equity and cultures in equity. Thank you. to just touch a little bit more on a key life event. It's a worldwide event that brought me, let me make sure the sound is good. Sound good? Not, not quite. How's that?
Okay. So I'd like to speak a little bit about a key life event that is one of the factors that brought me to practice. It's, it's still a mystery what brings us to this practice. We have some ideas, and this may be one of them. It's the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s. So many people were lost. So many people. I was a I was a lucky one. I only lost 25% of my friends. Isn't that crazy? And I know there's probably people here who lost 80 or 90% of their friends, their family. I really want to honor them and um, acknowledge the wish that they could know the progress in our society, the freedoms of having gay marriage that we have today. I was really present with a lot of friends when they, as they were dying. My Dharma gate, I guess, to be, it is, the, the, the um, being with the dying is a Dharma gate for my practice. I remember one time visiting my best friend, walking down the hall and hearing another voice call out, John, walked in. My friend Howard I hadn't seen in about six months, probably a week away from death. I had no idea he was even sick. That's how fast the AIDS crisis was moving. And when I was in the presence of the dying, there was no place to be but right there. Nothing was, else was arising but the heart connection to the person I was with. Or crawling in bed the night that I walked down that hospital hall with my best friend. It just happened. It just happened from the heart. The action was from the heart. So that period, it broke the heart, but it opened the heart. When I was with friends as they died, as they were dying, just that presence, there was no wanting. There was no not wanting. It was what it was. It was just two beings together in the face of death, but really just one heart. It's the heart of wisdom, the true deepest quality of our own hearts. It really is infinite in its ability to love, to offer compassion. And I felt some kind of connection to a deeper truth when I was there, being with the dying, where there was just, that was the only thing going on in my world, was being right there. Couldn't be anything else. And there was something beautiful that arose something came into awareness, very beautiful. It became like a pull in my life. I volunteered to work with a shanti that served people, only people dying of AIDS in the 80s and 90s and volunteered to be present. But I think it kept pulling me in the direction of something more toward the Dharma, maybe toward the deathless, maybe just to teach a taste of the deathless that's beyond the conditioned world and being fully present 
with the dying. So it really opened my heart to others, opened my heart to respond with compassion to suffering, to not turn away from it, but to be present for it and know it would be okay. And these are really beautiful qualities that I said in all of our hearts. And we can get so busy in the world, so focused on the problems we have, that we can forget to pay attention and appreciate the beautiful qualities of the heart. The simple acts we may take every day to help someone out who's falling. We just naturally reach out to help them. Our many folks I know here work in areas where they're offering compassionate care every day, our caregivers to a loved one. Take a step back, appreciate what you're doing. It really inclines the heart in that direction for the heart to open further, for the letting go of the reactivity of the mind for things to be different than they are, just as it was for me in being present with death and dying. Just taking the time to listen, to be present for a friend who has a problem, just to be present. What a gift, just to be present, not trying to take them anywhere, not trying to fix the situation, just to be present. That's what I do in my hospice volunteer work. My job is to sit, listen, and breathe. It's exactly what we're doing, isn't it? <laughs> sit, listen, and breathe. The first few times I was uh, volunteering and being suddenly surprised that I would reach out my hand and begin stroking the forehead of the person in bed or speaking words of the beautiful presence that they had. There was no thought. There was no thinking before the action. The action was coming from the heart. It was a little bit startling at first to, to see and register this. A couple of stories and hopefully open, help to open your hearts to appreciating the beautiful qualities that are present in every one of your hearts. There's a person in hospice, Shay, that I sat with and Shay had a stroke. The nursing staff didn't think Shay had any cognitive capability. But when I sat with they felt this real sense of love and kindness. And I held Day's hand almost every week for an hour or two, three or four weeks. And one day I was with Shay, and we heard a glass break in another room. And immediately Shay reached up, right arm, and waved me to go help the other person. Where did this come from? It came from that heart of love and kindness, from a heart of compassion and the impulse to relieve suffering. So another little story, a simple act of kindness that I invite you to really appreciate the kind acts in your lives. 
I was visiting a friend for dinner, my husband and I, about 10 or 12 people. And this is a fairly new friend. He was just back from Japan, had these incredible chocolates. And I, I love chocolates once in a while, and these were really worth having. <laughs> I, I told him, I was really raving about these chocolates. And in a second, he said, oh, I bought a second box. I'll give it to you. It was just a real simple action. But he acted on that impulse. You know, I made this great friendship with him as a result because I felt that heart connection. (laughs) How could he not fall in love with that? (laughs) In the next three months, other friends learned about (laughs) the fact that I love this chocolate and I ended up with 10 pounds (laughs) of chocolate. So it's this power of this love is so strong that, that it's, I love to look at the Buddhist statues. Some of the Buddhist statues have a tear from one corner of the eye. I like to think of it as a tear of equanimity, of peace. The Buddha could hold the suffering of the entire world with peace. And yet the Buddha was known as a happy one. He could hold it all. So this unshakable ability to hold the suffering of the whole world. So Martin Luther King This quote, I shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to you what, do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. So such powerful words, the the fierceness of the love in the face of great love, hatred doesn't stand a chance. So this fierce love, we can accept the present moment just as it is. This present moment doesn't need any reactivity. We don't need to push it away. We don't need to hold on to it. It's just what it is. But we can be activists. We can stand up for authenticity, for who we are, for the changes needed in our world, needed in our society, make the fundamental changes that Ariana was touching on so beautifully. And we can continue to rest in that place of love to be with the true deep qualities of our own hearts. I really encourage you to, on a day-to-day basis, to pause, maybe to reflect at the end of the day from time to time on the beautiful qualities of your own heart. It will incline attention in that direction, away from the hindrances, toward the deepest qualities of your own heart. Thank you.
I was actually just thinking, oh, my taxi's here. <laughs> Two hard acts to follow. <laughs> and the iPad's shut down, that's great. It's perfect. Perfect offering, isn't it? I was, and what I'm looking for is uh, Mary Oliver. Here we are. Safari cannot open the page. <laughs> That's perfect. So, there's a line in the, the poem, uh, The Summer Day. Uh, I bet some of you know that poem by heart. Um, where she says, what else would you expect me to do? That's after she describes really studying the, the grasshopper. What? Yeah, so I was just looking for that line. What else would you expect me to do? What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? And why I love that poem is exactly what is manifesting here in, in what's being offered and here in what's being offered is, is uh, Oscar Wilde's beautiful line, you know, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. You know, it, it's the beauty of the Dharma because it manifests in such amazing, colorful, unique ways. And really, how can we be anybody but ourselves? I was listening to, uh, last year I was in Colorado, and I was listening to this beautiful man, his name is James O'Day, some of you may know him, he's Irish, and some huge political activism work, and he came to a group, a small group of us who are Dharma teachers to talk about his work, uh, Dharma. He's also a Dharma practitioner and Dharma teacher, and he was talking about, you know, getting shot at, and he got stabbed, and, you know, and it, it was just, it was just kind of his flow of what he was saying. It wasn't like, oh, this happened to me. And, you know, as I was listening to him and thinking about his beautiful work, and we, he had us all go around in the circle afterwards, and, and it was, certainly there was the, the word activism. And what came to me is that, at the time, what my activism was is that I was taking care of my parents. And I just shared that, because that's what was true. And the, the beautiful love and recognition in his face when I said that, there was such a meeting of hearts. And it wasn't like, hmm, well, you should really be doing this. And I know we were both touched by that. He said something to me afterwards. It was this exchange, this recognition. So I offer you that because it is all unfolding. It's all unfolding. You know, we just need to show up for it. And that is so not a passive process. When I think of this practice and when I think of what what has flowered in me, I would say 
the fearlessness of love. And please, I don't take that as loftiness. It's just that when I actually check inside, that's what's there. And even just now, as I was listening to Rena and John, I was you know, thinking, hmm, I don't know that I have anything else to offer. But maybe that's not true. As I listen to all of you, I can feel um, it's like uh, I'm so full. As I know we, we each are, it's, it's like I don't know if it can even anything else can go in. It's just so full. So I I think I can just share some of what I heard today. It's like it was just this flow of um, sort of one of you was was talking about um, her experience and just started to say, you know, I'm just in this space, in this room where I can be, I can really be myself. Like there is nothing to be self-conscious about. Starting to talk about, you know, just, you know, dressing and just, and then, and you know she was continuing and and i could i could feel in the circle there was just you know because we were all feeling the truth of that and the power of that the power of that container you know of non-separation even though it's such a it's such a rainbow of expression you know with that that complete acceptance and what that actually does inside it's like this flower opens this heart opens there's it's it becomes fearless because the container is so full of love that's just not in this hall That's in your own heart. And maybe that's what we can take as an inspiration from spiritual, political activists like Martin Luther King. Or I'm not going to make a list because I get in trouble with lists. Mm -hmm. It's true. You know, there's always someone that's left out. And that's the challenge. You know, we each have different people in our lives and different stories in our lives that have moved us or affected us or inspired us. There's that beautiful teaching at the end of his life when the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. I mean, that's not about separation. Without that, we don't have anything. And really that's at the heart of what Irina's saying in her extraordinary capacity to connect the dots, you know, through her own Dharma practice. And it may not express itself that way in you or in me. And yet we're all part of that. We're all part of that expression. And whatever we are doing in our lives. 
It's like what John was saying about just being present. It sounds so cliched. And yet listening to each of you today that I can be myself and that the power of what that means or someone else saying, you know, recognizing I just don't know. I just don't know. And it wasn't an expression of confusion. It was an expression of the mystery. Like, how does my tongue work? How does my feet move? It's like Mary Oliver's poem with the grasshopper. And if we, we lose that connection, we're lost. Uh, to me, this is the great beauty of this gift of the Dharma because it's so accessible. I mean, there's been several notes that have come forward with, understandably, I remember, you know, I know this feeling myself, the retreat's getting ready to end, and, you know, how am I going to deal with this relationship when I get home? How am I going to deal with a family member who I love dearly, who's mentally ill? How am I going to deal with facing this breakup, this job loss, these deaths? How, how, given this sacred, safe container, how is that even possible? And yet it is, it is possible. It's not because we're making a plan. You know, we're thinking ahead and we're going to get it all together and we're going to get it all ordered and we're going to get control of it because that is not how it happens. It's actually the opposite. It's actually settling. It's settling into this, this. Settling, connecting, being present for. And then what flows from that is the great mystery. Look out. Another image that came to me is, you know, we keep talking about open-heartedness and the undefended heart, uh, all these practices that allow us to open. There are times the heart closes, just like a flower closes. And we need to respect that. We need to respect that when that happens. We don't have to make a zillion stories about it. We can just listen. And in that respecting, it opens again. It's like night follows day. There's a natural order, really. So when that fear and anxiety comes up in me around, quote, facing the world or facing my life or you know, the call to Dharma arms, you know, how can I, how can I do that justice? I don't know the answer to that. But I know I don't have to be afraid. And the only way that I know that is because I can come home to whatever is with anything. 
I'd like to share just another story with you about an interaction with my father because it's an example of that fearlessness in fairly a small way, but for me it was very profound. Um, Because my father, as I said, Irish Catholic, very strong work ethic, and had, um, you know, grew up working class, but just had, had, had strong ideas about how things should be. And in his, uh, in his, his aging, he got, I, I think, what, what appeared to me was that there was more and more anxiety about not having control, just not having control of, of just the functions of the body even. Well, it's pretty understandable. And so something happened with, you know, with his TV and um, I was watching a movie anyway. Something happened afterwards, and it didn't work. He was really upset about it. And it happened. <laughs> it happened months earlier. And and I was visiting him, and he's like, "Don't you, you know, go near that TV, you know?" And he's and I was about to get on the plane the next day. And he's really upset and getting worked up. He's laying in bed at night. He's so vulnerable. He's like, "Ah, oh, he's really, you know." And I said, "Dad, you know, what would you do?" If I got on that plane tomorrow and it crashed and you never saw me again, how would you feel about this conversation? My father was 94 years old. My mother comes to the other room like, oh, stop, don't stop arguing. I said, don't worry about it. And he just looked at me. He just looked at me. He totally got it. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I'm just like you. I love you. And I kissed the top of his head. And I didn't create that. There's no I in that. That's what came through. And that's my Dharma practice. That's the gift of practice. So, you know, when you're slogging it out on the cushion, You know, or you're like, oh, at home. You know, is it worth it? Yes. (laughs) And is there one way to practice? And I know this is recorded. No. There's not one way to practice. And we all know that from all the varying, uh, when you hear us speak individually, either in the hall or in groups, you hear very different suggestions uh, for practice, and that was true in the Buddhist time. He spoke to each individual in terms of what was appropriate. So for some of us, it's going to be a daily disciplined sitting practice. You know? And really, I mean, I wouldn't knock it. If some of you are thinking, maybe should I? Try it. You know, but for some of us, that's not the practice. But that doesn't mean you throw out the rest out the window. Maybe it's metta practice. Maybe it's practicing metta when you're driving your car. Or maybe it's like when you can get that practice in is when you're laying down in bed at night. If you're doing some you know, mindfulness practice or some metta practice, maybe it's 10 minutes long. Or when you wake up in the morning, maybe it's three minutes. You know, some for yourself, some for others, some for the world. It doesn't take that long. You know, or maybe your practice is a commitment to kindness. And even in one day, I'm just going to make a commitment to practicing kindness and see how that manifests. Or maybe your practice is, I'm going to commit today to not complain. And then you notice complaint arises. So part of the practice is it isn't condemning this, the mind or what we call self for the complaint. It's just noticing, oh, it's reconnecting with the commitment. That's practice. 
Or maybe it's self-forgiveness. Hello, folks. How many of us in here have talked about that invisible whip? We're talking about violence here? What about that violence? What about that deeply conditioned violence? Is it your fault? No. Is it you? No. Is it repetitive at times? Conditioned? Uh, shows up? Yes. And we can work with that. Primarily by recognizing this is not the truth. Just because the, my mind or this mind is thinking that, it doesn't mean it's true. That's a great mantra. Or maybe we just touch into the feeling, the tenderness behind, underneath, the feeling of receiving that invisible hit, if you will. This isn't about judging, like, oh, I shouldn't be judging, you know, I shouldn't be saying that to myself. Like, you think you have control of that? If you had control of that, do you think it would be happening? (laughs) Seriously! It's really worth contemplating. If you really had control of that self-judging, self-recriminating, mental proliferation, if you really had control, do you think it would still be continuing? Anybody? But we can respond with wisdom and with compassion. We can feel into like, ouch, sometimes it's just ouch. Or sometimes it's like, oh, there it goes again. There's the Muzak. And we keep doing. It's like that Audre Lorde quote, you know, have a vision, take action, and, and the fear doesn't matter anymore. I am completely in alignment with Arena about how radical this practice is. It's profoundly radical, and the world profoundly, profoundly needs healing. And the Buddha talked about it. One of you asked about, was there any sort of call to action from the Buddha? Yes. He said, the world is on fire. It's on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. It is on fire with ignorance. This is what, this is what, it's completely in alignment with what Irina was just speaking about in a very detailed way. It's on fire with ignorance. So it behooves us to turn our attention right in our own hearts and notice, notice those seeds and sometimes those growths of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And not to be ashamed or to fight with it, but just to see, to see it, to turn that, that courage towards just being with it and allow, allowing it to transform by being present, but also bringing compassion. So I guess I would, I would close with um, open-heartedness doesn't mean having limits, not having any limits. It doesn't mean setting boundaries. It doesn't mean saying no. It doesn't mean not caring for ourselves. And 
And it's helpful to practice. It's helpful to practice. So my wish for you is that you don't locate what has you've experienced with here, that you understand that goes with you, with every breath you take, with every step you take, and it's, it's worthy of cultivation. It's worthy of attention. There's so many things we give our attention to. Waking up, paying attention, cultivating compassion and awareness is worthy of our attention and it has the power to be completely transformative. It has the power to lead to an unshakable liberation of the heart and mind. And that is my deepest wish for each and every one of you and for all beings, for all beings. Thank you. If you'd like, we can chant the metta chant together. Um, If you'd like to just listen, that's fine too. There's also copies up here if someone doesn't have one. Stay in the sitting, uh, even if you don't want to chant. I'll ring the bell. Thank you. Patiya Buddham Pujemi Himaya Dhammanu Dhamma Patipatiya Dhammam Pujemi Himaya Dhammanu Dhamma Patipatiya Sangam Pujemi Himaya Dhammanu Dhamma Patipatiya Mata Pitunam Pujemi Himaya Dhammanu Dhamma Patipatiya 
Acharyanam Pujemi Sabe Sata Sabe Panna Sabe Buddha Sabe Pugala Sabe Atabawa Pariyapana Sabahitiyo Sabe Purisa Sabe Ariya Sabe Anariya Sabe Deva Sabe Manusa Sabe Vinipatika Awera Hontu Abhyapaja Hontu Aniga Hontu Sukhiatanam Pariharantu Dukamujantu Yatalada Sampatito Mawega Chantu Kamasaka Sabe Sata Suki Hontu Sadu 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 May all beings be touched by the great heart of loving kindness. for your practice truly truly and may you have a restful sleep and you certainly don't wait need to wait for the two of us to leave um, so we may sit a little longer and you're certainly welcome to do that if you'd like we come to the end of this practice period. We have the opportunity to send wishes of well-being to those who are important to us. Family, friends, our teachers and elders. May they be safe and protected today.
May they live with ease and well-being. Whenever you're ready, allowing these wishes to extend to all beings, all life, the spirits of this great earth and universe. So we might sound like a broken record, but it's a lovely reminder that as we get closer to the retreat, the changing conditions bring about changing mind states. And I always think of this time of the retreat as a particularly beautiful one because we have the questions and fears or the challenges of how do I take this practice into my daily life. And this is how we do it, that in transitions we keep coming back to where our body is, the moment, what's happening in the moment, rather than being moved into future thoughts. And um, it's such a lovely blessing to have the support to um, create those neural pathways right here and now of being present as things change. That's such a gift. Thank you.